0: We are beginning a new series today, Our House, great picture there of it, um, talking about the church, Our House, and, and I know some of you, well, this is God's house, true, but it's also Our House, <laughs> it's, it's up to, this is where we worship, right, and I, I really like the, the title of this, this series um, being football season, right, you hear football players all the time, right, not in our house. Well, yeah, you lose fairly regularly in your house, So, <laughs> but, but we, when we talk about evangelism, that's what I want to talk about this first Sunday of this series, um, it is our house, right? We kind of look at it that way, and who are we going to invite to our house, right? Who, who do we invite to our house, and, and that, that kind of becomes our evangelistic model, right? We don't share Christ, we, we say, come to my house. Right. Come to where I and, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not I'm nothing wrong with that. But just come come worship with me. Right. And that's that's all fantastic. Um, so, again, this morning, I want to talk about evangelism. I want to start with an article by a guy named Wade Berden. Um He writes for Christ and Pop Culture magazine. I've never heard of it, but apparently it's a magazine where Christ intersects with pop culture and helps people find Christ through culture. Great idea. Um, but, but in this article, Wade is talking about an argument between two people on Facebook. I'm not sure if they're his friends or whatever, but it's just two people on Facebook. And the discussion becomes a logjam, right? They're disagreeing on something. It might be politics. I think it is politics, if I recall. But they're, they're arguing uh, um, on, on Facebook or whatever, and it's become a logjam until one of them posts an article or a link for an article that supported their position. Now, you know what happens next, right? The other person finds an article and posts it, and they begin to post, Google and post information that, that support their argument and put down the other person's argument, right? Um, and, and in the article, the, the writer says that she never saw how the discussion ended, but they wondered if it was still going on, Googling and posting articles as fast as they can, right? That was the way they communicated. And here's what I fear. I think when Christians think about evangelism, or when Christians, non-Christians, think about Christians sharing their faith, you know, evangelizing, um, this is what they envision, right? Digital or not, like this, this battle of information, right? Our house against your house. And nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to go to battle, so we just don't share our faith especially in today's world where where you know everyone's facts matter so much and everyone's truth is their truth and your truth you can't impose your truth and and we're, we're just on this this funny little stage in history where nobody can really share honestly about anything because we're all scared to death of hurting somebody's feelings insulting somebody pc you know all of that so nobody talks face to face anymore. That's too risky. We yell at each other on social media. That's a lot safer. Um, The problem with this is that there's information and then there's changed thinking or transformation, right? Two totally separate things. Um, Sometimes information helps change our thinking, right? We know this. That's that's why we make our kids go to school, right? We're hoping something's going to stick and they come home a little smarter than when they left in the morning. Just, you know, but as you watch the news, I, I get the distinct impression that a lot of times information simply isn't helping anybody at all. I keep thinking, well, I just if, I'll, if I can just post the right information, everybody would agree with me and stop being so stupid. Right. You get to you get to that point where you're just like, I just got to find the right article to post. I got to I got to find the right meme. Whew. Right. That, that that that'll that'll do them. That'll that'll teach them. That'll straighten everybody out. But the fact of the matter is simply giving someone information does not create the transformation, right? The, the metanoia, right? That, that life transformation, that, that total life turnaround that we all so hope for. That's what we're aiming for when we discuss evangelism or sharing our faith. We're hoping that somebody else's life can be turned around completely, right? Go in a completely different direction than the direction they're, they're going toward darkness and death. And, and, and when we share our faith, we're hoping and praying that they're going to turn their lives around and they're going to start walking toward life and light. God. And the article drives home the point, I think, that we all know intuitively, right? We, this, this isn't new, what this guy's writing about, really. What he says that art, stories, pictures, you know, on the wall when you think of an art, you know, portrait, whatever, um, dance, music, sculpture, plays, movies, all of the arts, fine arts, performing arts, all, all art, all art. Um, they tell us facts. In ways that we can receive them. Right? That's, the, that's the, the power of art. It tells us facts in ways that we can receive them, understand them, and empathize with the other. I don't know if you've had this experience. You had a different opinion, a definite opinion about something, and then you watch a movie, you read a book, and your opinion changed. Didn't matter what anybody had said before, but somehow that book or that movie or something put flesh on the bones of truth, and all of a sudden you recognize, oh, wow, I've been in the wrong. I I see that now. I see myself in the character. Art allows the facts to change us and our perspectives. Art gets by our defenses and our, and I love this phrase because that's for today, our, our alternative facts, right? Art gets by that. That was Charles Schultz in his comics, right? I've told you this before. Every comic that he wrote, it was like, I'm going to sneak in the gospel. I'm going to get past people's defenses. They're going to, but they're going to see themselves in Charlotte or Linus or, or Lucy. They're going to see themselves. And they're going to recognize something in them themselves that no number of people could tell them. Right? Kind of a, a an example. Kindergarten teachers are art. Right? They're just art. You can tell your kids 10,000 times in 10,000 different ways that they need to brush their teeth, that they need to do this, and need whatever. one day, <laughs> your little kid comes home from Sunday school, or excuse me, school, and all it took was their teacher, their Sunday school teacher, to say something. They, Mom, you ought to be brushing your teeth. You need to do it more. I was like, what? I've been telling you this since you were born, and now all of a sudden the teacher says it. Oh, the light goes on. <laughs> What's... Teachers, they're, they're art, right? The teachers, they explain things that... that the rest of us have trouble explaining, right? Send your kid to the kindergarten teacher if you need them to do anything. <laughs> They'll come home obeying. It's just the craziest thing. Now, here's the crazy thing on top of all that. Um, we're God's handiwork. I don't know if you're aware of that. We are God's art. Right? We're his, his masterpiece. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says this, For we are God's handiwork. Some translations, Masterpiece created in christ jesus to do good works which god prepared in advance for us to do right we're the art that god created so the world could receive him and understand him we're his art i don't know if you recognize that right we're the facts that will change the world and its perspectives right that's that's who we are we were created to get by people's defenses and alternative facts Right? Once they talk, once you talk to somebody and go eyeball to eyeball with them, just watch how fast all of your preconceived notions and presuppositions, all that stuff, they just fall away when you get eyeball to eyeball to somebody. Right? Everything that you thought was this, that, or the other thing, you talk to somebody eyeball to eyeball and everything changes. Right? Because the facts themselves are kind of, they're not nearly as potent as somebody's life. Right? Somebody's story. See, so we've got this crazy idea that evangelism started in the New Testament, right? That sharing your faith was birthed as the Jewish Christians told the Gentiles about Jesus and, you know, as they tried to model the kingdom life that he was ushering in. Um, now, strict, strictly speaking, <laughs> sharing Jesus did get it started in the New Testament because before the New Testament we didn't know Jesus, all right? So, yes. Um, yes, but, but sharing God got started in week one of creation. And really, what is sharing Jesus if it isn't sharing God, Right? You share one, you're sharing the other. So take a, let's take a look at Genesis chapter 1, where actually evangelism got its start, right? Very beginning, verse 26. Let us, this is the heavenly council, right? Let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and over all the wild animals and over the creatures that move along the ground. This passage makes two things very, very clear. Number one, we are created in God's image. He not only created us, but like all great craftsmen, Right, And all of their their art and their masterpieces, their very art and their very masterpieces is a reflection of the artist. And I'm going to give you a very, very gross example. Not gross, that's the wrong word. A very uh, imperfect example. But it's going to have to work. You're just going to have to accept it as an imperfect example. Diane and I, we were given the opportunity to create one masterpiece. Her name's Amanda. We created her. There's nothing else really in this world that we actually created. Now here's the thing. Amanda is not us. <laughs> she is so different from us, but much to her chagrin, right? She's got Diane and I just all over her, right? She's not terribly thrilled about that, but right? She sees things and it's like, "Mom, this is you. This is your fault." <laughs> right? She's totally separate from us, but she's got us all over her. And again, that is such a, a, a grossly imperfect way of describing this, but she was created in our image. Right? If you get to know her, you're kind of getting to know us, not completely, not like I'm gonna explain in a little bit, Jesus. The second thing made clear in verse twenty-six is this humans have a royal ruling function over all of creation. We were created in his image and we were created to be the boss. <laughs> That's it, right? We were we were we're his his viceroys, we're his his governors. We were given the task of governing in his stead, in his place. Right? Not only was humanity created to image or represent God in the world in ways that the world could receive him and understand him, additionally, we're supposed to be God's viceroys, right, acting on behalf of the king. But how we rule and the way we rule is super important. It makes a big deal to God. Listen to this. I'm going to continue. This is in chapter 1, but I'm going to jump to verse 29. And then God said, I give you every seed buried. I hate this passage. I'll just tell you right now. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And then in verse 30, until all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And so it was. So apparently in the beginning we didn't eat steak. And I don't know if we're going to be eating steak in heaven and it just really theologically bothers me, but I'm going to get around this. I, I know it's going to be okay. I trust God on this one. (laughs) It's difficult, but I, I, I do, I trust him. See, we aren't allowed to consume anything for which we're charged to care for. I don't know if you caught that. In the big scheme of things, we're not allowed to eat what we're supposed to be caring for. And as you look at the world, you see a lot of people eating what they have no right to. They're literally taking food from others. We're not allowed to consume anything for which we're charged to care for. Our work as rulers is never for our own gain. On the contrary, every part of creation exists in service to the whole. Nothing in creation, nothing in creation exists for its own purposes. Everything in creation exists to serve the whole or to serve some part of the whole. Everything that God created, including us. And then from chapter 2 of Genesis, one last function, right, as, as God's art. This is in verse chapter, chapter 2. We're going to jump, jump to chapter 2 of Genesis. This is verse 26. It says, Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up for the Lord. God had not sent rain on the earth. So we got water coming up from the ground, but we got rain coming from above. And there was no one to work the ground, so we've got a problem. We've got no water, rain, and we got no one to work the ground. This passage makes very, very clear that we've got a third thing that we're supposed to be doing. We're God's priests. We mediate God to the world, right? Just as the priests were to guard and to minister, and I'm going to put that in quotes, to guard and to minister. That's a Hebrew phrase. I'm not going to bother you with it right now. To guard and minister in the sanctuary, right? We're called to keep and till. The priests to guard and minister in the sanctuary, the temple, and us to till and keep the ground in God's sanctuary. That's all creation, not just the temple, right? All creation is his temple. And in fact, to guard and to minister in the sanctuary and to till and to keep In the garden, the exact same verbs in Hebrew, the exact same words. So one applies to the priests in the earthly temple and one applies to us in God's temple. And when we grasp the fact that we are God's image bearers, right, that we rule on his behalf and we're tasked with caring for and ministering to his creation, right, it's easy to understand why God was so against graven images, right? We're his images, Right, No piece of wood is going to explain God to people like a follower of Jesus Christ. They, they just can't. It's impossible. Right? This is why God hated the idols and all, all that kind of stuff. We're his idols. We're his images. And he doesn't want anyone to go around his special creation and try to find him because you will not find him. You will only find him through his His image. But as we read through the Old Testament, we find that humanity failed at all three tasks. They they bombed on all three of them. As did the kings of Israel, God's appointed shepherds. They too failed, all three. But then there's Jesus. Then there's Jesus. God's crowning masterpiece. God's opus. The very word and wisdom of God. John chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2 and verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and then jumped to 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And if this is all true, right, then how did Jesus go about imaging God? Right? How, how did He do it? No, we, we, we know we're supposed to be doing that, but I just kind of want to ask this this morning. How did Jesus go about imaging God, right? How did, how did Jesus exercise His authority As viceroy. And how did did he keep and till and guard and minister creation as God's high priest? In other words, how did Jesus share his faith in God? Right? This is evangelism like 1.0. Right? In the New Testament, we jumped in and we got in on 2.0. We're we're talking 1.0 here. How did God, Jesus, share his faith in God? Right? Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38 gives us a peek. Kind of a glimpse as to how Jesus shares God. And at the same time instructs us as how do we share God. And how do we, how should we share our faith, right? I'm going to take a look. Matthew chapter 9, I'm going to start in verse 35. It says this. Jesus went through all the towns and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. So he's doing two things, right? Jesus and the disciples are going to go out into the towns and villages. They're teaching the people about a kingdom, a kingdom that Jesus is ushering in. Now, in the Old Testament, you don't see a lot of verbiage about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, but you definitely in Judaism had this idea of a king. right? God is our king, and then, then we ended up with earthly kings. And so there's this, there's this idea of kingship and this idea of kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven. It's really not so much a geographical place. We, we, we know this. It's really really has more to do with the ruler himself, that ruler's sovereignty and power. So what does Jesus offer them? As they go out and they, they teach people about this, this this crazy new and different kingdom that he's going to usher in. While he's doing that, they find people are filled with pain and sorrow. Right? They're lonely. They're hungry. They're bewildered. They're, they're sheep without a shepherd. So he's trying to teach them about a future reality that is starting to happen already they're still so stuck in the old reality that they they can't even lift their heads. They just it, it doesn't make sense. They're, they're just sm- being smothered by the old kingdom, the old old creation. But as Jesus was teaching about the kingdom that He was ushering in, right, the plight of the people stuck in that old kingdom just stopped everything cold. And so he stops teaching, and what does he do? He, he heals people. He addresses their needs. Right? Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Right? He arrived. He's got his notes. He's got his notebook. He's all ready to teach, and he looks out, and it's like, nobody's listening. because like, They're starving. They're, they're bewildered. They're lost. They're like, what's, what's that idiot up there talking about now? Right? I'm starving. My wife just left me. So he just stops everything and starts healing. The disease and the sickness of the old world, the old creation, had people of Israel so enslaved in that state, they just couldn't see their way out of it. So first Jesus tells them about this kingdom. Then he recognizes they might not be listening because they're just so... Emmeshed in their own hurt and their own pain. I don't know if you recognize this, but when you have pain and hurt that goes really, really high, you can't see anybody else's. It literally locks, you don't see anybody else but your own, your own pain. So he tells them about this crazy new kingdom, but then he also shows compassion on them, right? That the leaders of Israel had not done. They had not shown compassion. They were horrible shepherds. In John chapter 10, he talks about the evil. One And it's really the, the leaders of Israel. They were the evil ones. They were the horrible shepherds, right? They were the ones that were stealing the sheep and sneaking into the pen. They were just doing everything wrong. So Jesus shows them compassion. Compassion on the shepherdless crowds and judgment on the false leaders. Then he changes the metaphor, kind of, kind of based on what he's seen and, and what the disciples have just witnessed, right? They come out. We want to teach a lesson. Well, everybody's hurting, so we need to address that first. And then he changes from sheep to farming, right? Just boom, boom, boom. says this in verse 37. says, then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So Jesus wants his disciples to understand that if you look, if you look, I promise you, you will find hurting people, suffering people, bewildered people, people in pain, people in sorrow. Right? I know a lot of Christians, well, my neighbor is a Christian, so eh, what am I going to (laughs) do? Go out and walk around. Just, just go out almost anywhere in town. You, you will find, and I get the distinct impression. This is true with me. I know this. If I walked out there, I would find it. But you know what? That's making an awful big claim on my time and my money and my resources. See, so if I don't see it, <laughs> it doesn't exist. We're like little two-year-olds playing peekaboo. I don't see any pain. Well, yeah, because you live in your living room. (laughs) You're not going to find anybody in pain. You're going to actually believe that nobody's in pain. Because your neighbors aren't, your family. You're you're all kind of good to go. So Jesus teaches them to pray. Verse 38. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Essentially, the same exact prayer as the Lord's prayer, right? When the disciples oh, teach us how to pray, Jesus, oh, okay, I'll teach you. Right? And he launches into our, our, our Father who art in heaven. The exact same prayer. Basically, what Jesus is teaching us to pray is to join him in his Father's work and redeem in the whole world, right? In bringing heaven to earth, bringing heaven to people in darkness. Same prayer. Now, here's the deal. If we, were to, if we were to call Jesus, if we were to compare Jesus' method of evangelism with our current understanding, I think, of evangelism, let me, let me just show you what it might look like. And this is kind of a weird thing, but let's just, just go along with it. All right? right? Here's what, here's what God, Jesus' plan kind of looks like. He sees a need and he addresses it with compassion and healing. That's his evangelism plan. He sees a need and he addresses it with compassion and healing. And he tells them about a kingdom in which the people who are hurting, their hurts will be addressed. And so it's kind of a d- double whammy. It's a, it's a two-shot. Right? I'm going to fix you right now, and then I'm going to tell you about a kingdom where you won't experience these pains anymore. Because this king is going to take care of that. He's going to address this need. He's not going to ignore you. He's not going to be a bad shepherd. He's going to be a good shepherd. He's going to lay down his life for the sheep. This is the kingdom I'm talking about. The biblical understanding of the term evangelism, I want you to catch this, it's always a win-win proposition. If you do it this way, you will never experience, you know, you go out, I'm going to go evangelize today, and then you come back, anybody, did you save anybody? No, everybody, you know, everybody said no. That's kind of the way we have it set up, the way we see evangelism in our world today. It's a win-lose Someone wins, somebody loses, right? Right? They accept and pray the sinner's prayer, or they don't. It's like our two friends on Facebook, right? Their goal and our goal is to win. We win them. We really—I'm going to say this carefully because it's not always true—but we tend to not really care about them personally or their situation. We just want to make sure that they get saved and that they get to go to heaven. And whatever their life looks like for the next 40, 50, 60 years, well, whatever, they get to go to heaven. So stop complaining. That's kind of the way we tackle evangelism, right? That, that's, just, that's not Jesus' model. Loneliness and hunger and pain, sorrow, bewilderment are always receptive to relief. You will never find somebody sitting by the tire, the side of the road with a flat tire, and you drive up, can I help you? Nope, nope, go away, no thanks, I'm good. Right? Nowhere will you have find somebody in pain and hurting, and you come and help them, and they'll say, no, go away from me, get away from me. Right, but if you come with a tract, I want to save you. I want to tell you get away from me. <laughs> Just I don't want to be preached at, man. I got a broken leg. I can almost promise you if I were to give you two choices, let's go evangelize, let's go evangelize at the park this afternoon, or let's take some sandwiches down to a tent city set up because of flooding and fires. Do you know which will get where I'll get more help, right? I'll get more help with the people, taking a group down to help people. I will get nobody. I'll get one or two maybe. Let's go down to preach to people. Ooh, there's an afternoon. I'm, yes. And the people on the other end, they're going, no, no. Please go away. We don't want preaching. And when we, when we, when we assist, when we help people, the lady by the side of the road, you know, any of that, we're finally succeeding at the three roles that God gave us. Right? You recognize that, right? When we're properly imaging God, right, as His viceroy's and His priests, that's what we end up doing when we when we help people in need. But the model of evangelism that many believe is to be the the only model, right? It kind of looks like this: we assume a need and we address it with information and conversion. <laughs> Right? I'm going to assume that you're lost, you're broken, you have, your morality is in the toilet. I'm just going to assume all these things. You need Jesus. <laughs> and again, they're going to respond, well, I, I, I'm, I need a babysitter. That's what I need. That, that's what I need to be saved from right now is the fact that I can't find a babysitter. That's what I need to be saved from right now. But with Jesus, right, compassion is absolutely central to evangelism. Right, in our in our understanding of evangelism, it's always a, a win lose. It's always a win lose. But with Jesus, it's always a win win. Right when we address I might have said it wrong earlier when we address people's loneliness, it's a win win. But when we come to them with a contract and we say either sign this or don't sign it, right, it's a win lose. And pretty soon we're not going to do it because a lot of people don't want to sign that contract. They don't even know what they're signing. But it's not like we have to add compassion to our evangelism or our discipleship model. That, that, that just, you've got everything backwards if, if, if that's the plan. Right? Evangelism without compassion simply isn't the biblical evangelism preached in the New Testament. It's, it's just not. Jesus didn't walk around with tracks telling about his father. He went and demonstrated with healing and with miracles, this is what my father's like. Here's, if you want to meet him, let me show you. I'm his artwork. I can express him to you like nobody can. If we cut going out and going and seeing... And naturally having compassion, right? Going out into the byways and the alleyways and seeing hurting and pain. We, we read all of these passages. Wow, that looks really bad in the yellow. To, we see all that, right? If we don't go out and see all that, it's like we have to generate compassion. Like we've got to drum it up. Okay, i gotta, I got I to gotta feel bad for these people. i got to feel bad for these people. And if I don't feel bad for these people, oh, man, I really don't want to. How do I feel bad? I, you know, we were trying to drum up these feelings. And I can promise you, the person out there whom you're drawing, trying to drum up feelings of empathy for, they're going to notice that it's fake. right? And it's going to be terribly insulting to them that you're trying to pretend like you care for them when all you want to do is get them to say, I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. Then you can go home and have your pot roast. That's kind of where we get. Done deal. Jesus will take care of the rest, and I got no more claims on my time. Done deal. God, I'm going to hand off this person to you, and it's all yours. (sighs) Take it home. Evangelism then becomes, or it can become, kind of a mean-spirited, heartless, loveless, short-sighted, overbearing exercise in coercion. And we, we kind of do that just, just a little bit, right? We feel like we have to work to get folks to say the right words so they can go to heaven. And then we think that that's all there is to salvation, but it's not, right? It's so much more than that. Heaven's kind of a culminating thing. But Jesus wants us to help our neighbors in need now, right? Now. That's the beginning of their salvation. Us arriving on their doorstep with some tools in our hands and saying, hey, I can help. You have begun to save them at that point. Their salvation has begun. Now, I understand the atonement, right? Them being made one with God. That's not something we can do. Christ had to handle that part. The atonement. But we can begin the salvation. We are the tools of salvation for people. We help. We save them from life and death situations. That's what we do. Learning about accepting Christ as Lord and Savior, that will come in due time. That's important. Absolutely important. And the key to remember... Is our neighbor the one in need or the one that hates us? Jesus kind of made a big deal about that, right? We all think our neighbor is the one right next door to us. He's really nice, great neighbor, whatever. But Jesus is saying, that's not what I'm talking about. Your neighbor is somebody who is in need who or who actually hates you. They're living in darkness. You have the key. What are you going to do about it? And here's the kicker. When we place our entire focus on the crisis decision, and it's important, it's hugely important, don't get me wrong, for us to say to our Lord and Savior, I, I, I accept you as my Lord and Savior. From my mouth, hear this. This is huge. This is important. But if we narrow it down and we keep it to just that, we've missed everything. We, we've, we've missed it all, right? We've basically said, hey, we've got a ticket, but you can't touch this until you die, right? And from here until now, good luck. That, that's kind of what we give people in our evangelistic efforts and to save people, get them to be a born-again Christian. It somehow relieves us when we focus on that decision in the afterlife, right? Heaven, God, you take care of all that. It somehow relieves us of all claims on our brothers and sisters in the here and now, right? And Genesis tells us we are our brother's keeper. Try right, To focus on bringing God's kingdom to the here and now, it makes claims on us. It makes claims on our time and our money. Maybe rather than being more proficient and having quicker methods of evangelism, perhaps one claim on our lives ought to be loving our neighbor, right? The one that doesn't like us. The one that actually has a need. Dr. Timothy Gaines from Trevecca Nazarene writes this in his book on Christian ethics. He said, we should not shy away from it. The gospel of Jesus Christ will make claims on us our desires, our resources, our bodies, our money, and every aspect of life. And those claims are good for all of creation. Biblical Christian evangelism insists it's not enough to say I didn't cause that or that's not my fault while others suffer from whatever it is that you didn't cause. Biblical Christian evangelism says it's not enough to say, I'm not a racist, I'm not a sexist, I'm not bigoted, I'm not whatever, while somebody else suffers the consequences of those evil mindsets. Biblical Christian evangelism insists that it's not enough to say it's their fault and not to actively address the causes behind the behavior that wasn't your fault. Biblical Christian evangelism insists that it's not enough to say, thank you, Lord, that I'm not one of those groups being attacked, belittled, or otherwise... Marginalized, and we don't say those words. <laughs> that would be silly. But our prayers sound a lot like that. Oh, Lord, you've blessed me. I live in a nice neighborhood, right next to a nice school. And biblical Christian evangelism says it's not enough to live in comfort when others are in need. Nothing in creation was created, including us, for our own benefit. We were created in service to the whole. I want to close with one last look at Bearden's thoughts on art. He argues that Christians have a persuasion problem, not, not, not an information problem. We've got plenty of information. We've got great information, but we've got a persuasion problem why is because we believe that all we need is access to the right information right if we can just send them the right article send them the right link give them the right passage of the bible make them listen to jerry's sermon you know that one or you know whatever that'll do it that'll that'll take care of everything just give them the right information in this article in christ in pop culture uh, the writer brandon Bearden um, quotes jonathan Haidt. he's a, a moral psychologist and he's an author. And he says that our brains, information, our brains process information through two distinct yet intimately related systems, right? He compares the first system to an elephant, right? So we've got two systems. One system, the first system, is like an elephant, right? Um, it handles all of our automatic processes, including emotion and intuition. For example, our brains automatically, when I say two plus two, you didn't even have to think about it. You didn't even have to think about it. It was just automatic. It was involuntary. It just happened. It's not just that he's smart. It, he, right? It, it just came out. Right? Or if you're reading a book and you see the word "red," you, you don't even think about it unless you're learning to read. Right? It just, it just, you, you say the word "red." It just, it just, it just happens. Happens. Right? This is this is the elephant. This is the first system in our heads. Right? Um, we don't make a conscious decision to do these things. They just happen. Now, here's the key. That also includes our biases, our internal beliefs ingrained into our psyche, right? And then he describes the second system as the rider that sits on top of the elephant. He's the rider. System two is the rider sitting on top of system one, which is the elephant, right? You get the picture. The rider is our conscious reasoning, right? If the elephant tells us that two plus two equals four, we don't even have to think about it. We have to go to the rider when we have to figure out 12 times 15, right? It doesn't just happen Did anybody know it instantly? No, right? You kind of got to go to your thinking brain and do a little bit of math. And, right, the elephant doesn't do that. The writer does that. Okay, we're making sense here, hopefully. Now, usually when we talk to somebody about a deeply emotional topic like religion or politics, we speak to the writer. We scream at the writer. We throw facts at the writer. We yell at the writer. We harass the writer, right? But the the, the author, hate says that this won't change anybody's mind, right? Because the inner beliefs of the person... Their emotional responses, they're already going in the opposite direction of where you're trying to get them, because that's the elephant. All of their internal beliefs, what they believe about themselves, their values, and they don't really think about it, it's just there. It's already going in a different direction. We're yelling at the rider, but the elephant's taking the rider where the elephant wants to go. And if the elephant is going one way, then the rider follows along too, even if we have facts on our side. He says this about the writer. The writer is skilled at fabricating post-hoc explanations for whatever the elephant has just done and is really good at finding reasons to justify whatever the elephant wants to do next. If you follow social media, you see a lot of people, right? They're yelling at the writers, but it's the elephant running the show. Now, most dialogue today focuses on the writer. Our tweets, our arguments, the, the links that we post, right? They pass the fact test, but we end up striking our foreheads on the wall because some people just don't seem to get it, right? Frustration turns to anger, and then it turns to sarcasm, and we want to humiliate them through some clever turn of phrase on, on social media. And those on our team, they affirm us, right? Yeah, they're just dumb, or they're, they're immoral, those people. And what we said might be true, but the gap widens. They're not getting any closer to the truth, and we're not getting any closer to loving them. We just get further and further and further apart, Movies like the Jesus film, right? Good stories, art, us. We can explain things about God that words simply cannot do. One key to persuading the elephant within all of us is, is, just, is good art, good stories, good movies, right? The elephants rule, but they're not dumb, and they're not despotic either. Right, I'm going to quote here. Intuitions can be shaped by reasoning, right? We can use argument and information, but it only works when the reasons are embedded in a friendly conversation or an emotionally compelling movie, novel, or news story. Don't you catch that? When it's embedded in art, we can accept truth. We can understand it. We can empathize with the other, but when somebody is just talking or yelling at us, right, you're yelling at the writer, but the elephant's... continues to go in the same direction more often than not information alone doesn't change one's mind stories do art coats flesh to the bones of truth so next time you're tempted to get into a political argument or you'd like to share your faith with somebody I want to make a suggestion have dinner with them go spend some time with them go to a park with them do something with hang out with them if you are truly concerned About their salvation. Don't arrive at a park with a track, give it to them and walk on. Spend some time with them. Find out what are their hurts and pains. What do they believe? What are their thoughts on God? Talk to them eyeball to eyeball, right? Allow their hurts and their pains and their reservations and their hesitations to make a claim on your time and your money. Facts matter. Facts matter. They always do. But we shouldn't sacrifice our convictions by saying every belief is valid, right? We we know this. But how we convey those facts and those convictions, that matters too. The last thing we want people to think is that it's our house against their house. Right? Then you got battle lines, defenses, ba-boom, boom, boom, game over. It never even got started. We want people to believe that our house will die for your house. That's our message And as we share communion this morning, that that was God's message, right? My house will die for your house. That's evangelism, right? Not getting somebody to say the the magic prayer. That's huge. Don't get me wrong. That's not what people were looking for to begin with. And if you try to give them something they're not looking for, it's going to be a long battle. You're going to be shooting links to each other. But if you address their needs, if you find out what their needs are, then you've opened up a conversation. You've opened up a world of possibilities. What we want to convey, what Jesus wants to convey, is that our house will die for your house. And as we share communion this morning, I want you to understand the art behind it all, right? The elements Allow them to explain the realities about what Jesus did for us that nothing that I say up here can equal. As you look at the elements this morning and you recognize what they represent, that's art. It's the flesh on the bones of truth. Right, this represents the greatest evangelistic method or tool at our disposal. And I want you to notice it's not a gospel tract, it's not a bullhorn it's not four spiritual laws memorized, right? It's a life that God made a claim on. And he makes the same claim on our life. We're, we're his art. We can explain him better than anything. Us, Mother, thank you. Thank you for providing a masterpiece for us to gaze upon. To live into, to to become, Father, help us to live up to this in in this these tasks that we have. We are your image bearer, Father, and we're we're your we govern on your behalf. You gave us you gave us that, you you commanded us, and we're also your priests, Father. Help us to bring people to you, not to a a contract, but, but to a relationship to you, Heavenly Father, so real salvation can continue and be completed. Father, for all these things, we thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.